Good afternoon. Welcome to this afternoon show. This afternoon, Dr. Douglas Osheroff, Nobel Physics Laureate. But not only, folks, are we going to talk about the phenomenal discovery he made to win him the Nobel Prize, but we're going to look at the Columbia disaster. You see, Dr. Osheroff was asked just after the Columbia spaceship exploded to be part of the investigative team. Dr. Osheroff. I think the biggest cause of this accident, the biggest cause of loss of life, was in fact NASA culture. Oh, let's talk and about that. There was a woman who That's was fun. the head of the mission management team. She was literally responsible for the lives of the astronauts when they were in orbit. The astronauts in Columbia were told of the foam strike, but they were assured that the foam could not damage the orbiter. I don't know what sort of education upper-level management at NASA has, but it's not that hard to calculate what the maximum force was, and it was about 6,000 pounds. This afternoon, Living History, Dr. Douglas Osheroff, Nobel Prize in Physics, and key investigator in the Columbia disaster, right now on Brent Holland. Folks, if you're just joining us today, we are speaking with an honest-to-goodness Nobel Prize laureate in physics, and his name is Douglas D. Osheroff, and he won the Nobel Prize in physics in 1996. Doug, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us this afternoon. Much appreciated. My pleasure to be here. Okay, let's jump in right away. You won the Nobel Prize for physics. What did you win it for, and can you explain that to the students that are listening? And myself as well. And myself as well, because <laughs> I'm an art, you know, I come from an artsy background from university, so tread lightly. I got the Nobel Prize for having discovered superfluidity in helium three. Now, superfluids and superconductors have a lot in common with one another. In particular, the kind of superfluidity I found in helium three is is in fact rather close analog to some of the exotic superconductors that have been discovered recently, that is to say, uh, a long time, uh, about 40 years ago, is when I made my discovery. Uh, And uh, what is it good for? I think uh, we've learned a lot by studying helium-3. Some of it is directly related to superconductivity, but in fact, because the temperatures involved are so low within a couple thousandths of a degree of absolute zero, I think there is not and there will never be a commercial application, just too expensive to reach those low temperatures. Understood. Okay, and you're also teaching at Stanford, and obviously you're teaching physics. 
physics at Stanford. How did this idea come about that there would even be such a thing inside helium-3? First of all, it was actually, I think, just a couple years after the publication of the BCS theory that explained the microscopic origins of superconductivity that other people, particularly theorists like Phil Anderson, people like that, started thinking that uh, liquid helium-3, which stays in a fluid state all the way to absolute zero, because helium-3 atoms are Fermi particles. That is to say, they have a net spin of one-half, and no two Fermi particles can occupy the same quantum state. So the helium-3 atoms would play the role that electrons play in a superconductor. But it's very complicated after that, once you postulate that, because in fact, in the case of superconductors, the electrons talk to one, one another mm. through the lattice, whereas in a liquid, of course, there is no lattice. And so I, I think even up to the point where we discovered superfluid in helium-3, there were questions about whether it could actually exist. Folks, we're speaking with Nobel Prize in Physics winner Douglas D. Osheroff. The whole idea behind the show is just to inspire students to go beyond what they thought their limitations were, to really excel themselves and just go for it like you have. And that's why I wanted you to come on the show, is just to inspire the students. What's the difference in your mind between physical research and experimentation? Now, this is going to go back to your high school days. Physical research is, generally speaking, you have a question and you do a series of experiments. It was actually my high school chemistry teacher that said to his class that, that every time you do an experiment, you're asking a question of nature. And nature must answer your question, but nature's answers are a bit obscure and difficult to understand. That's exactly the way it is. And that's the way I think about research to this day. So you usually go in with a, a specific question and, and you ask nature questions by measuring things and doing experiments, seeing how the system that you're studying responds to a change in pressure or change in magnetic field or something like that. In the particular case, the discovery that I made was made when I was actually testing how well my refrigeration device worked. And so we weren't looking for superfluid in helium-3. It just happened to be there. It's kind of, uh, you know, I compose music for television and film, and sometimes I compose something, it just comes, and I, it's a surprise to me. Is it kind of like that, would you say? Well, you it's certainly a surprise. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. Eureka! It's alive! I have to say, the first time the experimental manifestation of the superfluid, existence of the superfluid phase, was that I was basically cooling the system at a constant rate, and all of a sudden, the rate of cooling decreased. And, of course, I was very unhappy to see that, because I assumed that there was something had gone wrong. Actually, uh, the, the decrease in the rate of cooling was because there's a jump in the heat capacity of the liquid when it starts going into the superfluid state. So I think the first time I saw that, I didn't think I, I was very unhappy, and I hoped I would never see it again. And then I think it was a few days later, uh, evening, night. Uh, experiments get frequently get done late at night. Oh, so I was, I was yeah. redoing this experiment, and what I found was that, that the signature, this point temperature at which the cooling rate decreased, reproduced itself to a part in 100,000. I said, wait a minute, 
Yeah. It cannot be a chance heating event if it's that reproducible. And I knew at that point this was very likely to be superfluid in helium-3. Did you stop the experiment right away and then try to recreate it right away, right after that? Oh, well, I did it several times. Actually, it's mm. pretty quick to do these experiments over and over again. At four in the morning, I called up my thesis advisor to tell him <laughs> what I'd seen. He called me back at 6 a.m. for more details. He hadn't been able to get back to sleep. I got no sleep that night at all. Pretty exciting stuff. Now, right away, I think, you know, absolute zero, would this not have a use in space? I mean, the trouble with absolute zero is the heat capacity. That is, you know, you put in a little bit of heat and you find that the temperature rises by a small amount. And so the amount that the temperature rises basically goes like one over, over the heat capacity. So if the heat capacity is very large, then you get a very tiny rise in temperature. But the trouble is that as temperature approaches absolute zero, all materials, everything that we know about anyway, that the heat capacity becomes vanishingly small. It takes virtually no heat to warm it up. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. See, you've, you've hooked me now. Now, if you can hook me, you've hooked students out there for sure. Folks, we're speaking with Nobel Prize in Physics 1996, Douglas Osheroff. While we're on the subject of space, let's talk about the Columbia disaster. Now, folks, for those of you that may not remember or weren't around for whatever reason, February 1st, 2003, the Columbia Space Shuttle exploded in midair on re-entry. Douglas Osheroff, our guest today, was asked to be on the panel to examine and find out what actually happened that day. Can we talk a little bit about that? I'll just have to tell you that that was probably what, the most fascinating thing I've ever been involved in. Really? And, you know, it was high drama because seven oh, yeah. people lost their lives in that accident. Absolutely. And the question was, what happened? Can we prevent it from happening? And was there some NASA procedure that had failed? Precisely. Now, there was even talk that a terrorist missile may have taken it down. Can we rule that out? Well, we think we know pretty well what the cause of the accident was, and it certainly wasn't a terrorist missile. Okay. I think the biggest cause of this accident, the biggest cause of loss of life, was, in fact, NASA culture. Oh, let's talk and about that then. There was a woman, I won't mention her name now, who That's was fine. the head of the mission management team. She was literally responsible for the lives of the astronauts when they were in orbit. Then there were a whole bunch of NASA people who were reviewing the launch video. They actually get 35 millimeter movie film and video from several different vantage points. So you really can see exactly if anything goes wrong. What they found was that a piece of foam had fallen off of the external tank. Now this foam has a density, it's only one thirtieth the density of water fairly light stuff, but mm. it's a large volume of foam, so it weighed about a pound and a half, three quarters of a kilogram, and it apparently hit the Columbia on the left wing, and the question was whether it had hit the leading edge of the left wing, which is very fragile, or whether it hit the thermal tiles on the underside of the wing. One of the engineers informally had contacted the Department of Defense and asked if they would use their spy satellites to image the left wing of Columbia. Those people were willing to do it, but they called back this woman. She, of course, realized that one of the engineers had gone around her authority to make this request. 
And so regardless of what peril the astronauts might be in, she turned off the request. Really? And that spread through NASA at the speed of light. There was another group of engineers that were preparing a formal request for on-orbit imaging, but when they found out that whatever her name was had turned off the original request, they figured there was no reason to do anything. And so no one actually in the orbiter, if they had, they would have seen that there was a hole at least a square foot in size. That um, big? Yeah. NASA said it was impossible, this foam can't damage an orbiter, and eventually it was the only NASA member of the CABE, Columbia Accident Investigation Board, that forced NASA to do a ballistics test, where they took a piece of foam that was about the size of what must have hit the Columbia and put together all of these thermal tiles, leading edge of the left wing, and that knocked a hole that was somewhat larger than a square foot. I wasn't there. I'd, I'd been there for some of the earlier tests, which were on fiberglass, but apparently the NASA people just let out a collective groan at that point because they realized, in fact, what had happened and that there was, in fact, a huge hole in Columbia when she tried to re-enter the atmosphere. What a horrible day that was. But, in fact, that's what this, the head of the mission management team said. There's nothing that we could have done. And so the board put together a team of NASA engineers who were to imagine that it was day five of a 16-day mission, and they just learned that there was a large hole in the left wing of Columbia. What could they do to save the astronauts? Ultimately, they split into two groups, one of them recognized that Atlantis was close enough to being ready to launch, that they could have launched Atlantis, and they would basically have to wind down, conserve all of the oxygen they had in Columbia. But the feeling was, in fact, they could have got the Atlantis up and transferred the astronauts to the Atlantis before they ran out of oxygen. Doug, I wasn't aware that they knew in advance before they made the reentry that there may have been a problem with the wing. Is that, did I read you correctly on that? They knew in advance? Uh, no, really? absolutely. The, the, the engineers that, that looked at the, in fact, I have on my computer here, the 35 millimeter film version of the foam striking the left wing of Columbia. Now, that, of course, you can't see the, the leading edge of the left wing, but you know that something fairly big struck the left, left wing of Columbia. And uh, you'd think that only a fool would not have investigated what damage that might have caused. I mean, there must have been contingency plans available to them, uh, maybe a, an excursion outside the spacecraft to physically check, or perhaps even utilizing the Canada arm with a camera or something. Absolutely. I mean, none of those things were tried. So the, the astronauts in Columbia were told of the foam strike, but they were assured that the foam could not damage the orbiter. Oh, my God. The, the thing is, I don't know what sort of education upper-level management at NASA has, but it's not that hard to calculate what the maximum force was, and it was about 6,000 pounds. <sighs> You see, you would think NASA that, you know, it's noted for redundancy and safety and everything else. We would hope that they would be on the ball for something like this. And I'm so surprised that it was allowed to slip through the way it did. I don't understand. First of all, this business that the foam couldn't cause any damage. We estimated the, the mass of foam, as I said, was about 0.7 kilograms. And just from looking at the launch video, it was not hard to estimate that strike velocity had to be about 800 feet per second, what is the velocity of a 22 caliber bullet. But it 
doesn't weigh 10 grams, it, it weighed three quarters of a kilogram. Put in those terms, I don't think anyone would be surprised there was damage. You know, I just think of those lives lost needlessly, all because of human, I won't say carelessness, but just ineptness. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I really, of course, it's speculation as to why the head of the mission management turned off this request, but it was clearly her job to find out what damage had been done, and she did not do her job. She didn't do her job. So you made several recommendations. Now, of course, the space shuttle's been retired at this point. What do you think the future is of manned exploration in space is? I don't know. It's, it's very complicated. Of course, NASA wants to send humans to Mars, mm -hmm. and it takes two and a half years to get That's to right. Mars. That's right. And then, of course, two and a half years to get back. And when you're on Mars, there's very little atmosphere on Mars. You can, in fact, they can reprocess the air that they have, but it's a long time. You're going to be there because there's very rarefied atmosphere. It means that you're constantly being bombarded by cosmic rays, mm -hmm. mainly high-energy particles coming from the sun. And so the astronauts would probably end up wanting to actually live underground. That's my guess. Do you think it's realistic? Do you think it's necessary? Or do you think the Mars rover was enough? And um, folks, just to let you know, I had the honor of composing the music for that for NASA. Oh, really? Yeah, for the Mars rover. Very honored to have worked for NASA. But well, you I have to say that there was uh, spirit and opportunity had to be one of NASA's greatest triumphs. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. Those things were supposed to last for 90 days, lasted yeah. for several years. Isn't that incredible? And, and really, really did a wonderful job of exploring the Martian environment. You know, that puts an interesting question out there. Do you think that's the best way to explore space? rather than risk human life, just to send robots out or rovers as we call them? Well, I think you can certainly learn more cheaply and without risking human life if you use robotic probes. There's something else, though. Every 2.6 years, we can send a probe to Mars. And so the nature of these probes very quickly becomes very sophisticated because you basically have a very high attempt frequency. The fact that the Mars rovers lasted vastly longer than they were expected to. So that tells you something about how you design the next one. I just think we learn an awful lot from that process. And it's no now, I don't know that human beings are going to do a better job. Of course, you may argue that sending humans to Mars will have the same impact on the average American citizen as sending humans to the moon. But I frankly doubt that's the case. I think we basically become blasé sending humans. I could be wrong. Well, no, but, I agree but, with your perspective because I think that's what happened. I come from the era when we used to get up early to watch John Glenn be launched into space, Alan Shepard and the original Seven, as well as all the Apollo missions. But then along came the space shuttles. We became very complacent. It was almost as if somebody was just taking off on an airplane and then returning. We didn't really respect the dangers, I felt, that were still inherent in going to space. Because let's face it, space is not a natural environment for human beings. No, and, and I think reentry is an extremely challenging environment. You've got this air that is hitting your spacecraft. At the time that Columbia fell apart, I think it was going something like 12,000 miles an hour. Yeah, the numbers so, are just huge. Yeah, I mean, the, the air heats up 
very quickly. It literally melted the inside of the left wing of Colombia. Yeah, I just think of those people. Folks, we're speaking with Nobel Physics Prize Laureate 1996, Douglas Osheroff. We were talking about the Columbia space tragedy. He was on the commission that investigated that. People may argue that, well, let's say that a large asteroid is about ready to collide with Earth, and it's going to kill, I don't know, it's not clear it would kill every human being on Earth, but in fact, you know, it killed the dinosaurs. And so it certainly is a possibility that it will end the human race. At that point, you might say, well, maybe if we had some humans in a safe haven on Mars, they could come back later once things settle down. You know, mm-hmm. I think there is some merit in that argument, but still, what's true is you will have already killed most of the human beings on Earth by the impact of this large asteroid. And it becomes like a Hollywood feature film at that point. Who gets to go and who gets to stay? And do we send animals? Do we send DNA, etc., etc.? So there's always... No, it doesn't even make any sense to talk about that because the number that could go is so small. The question is, do you put them up there now or do you wait for the asteroid? I think what's true is that we should, if it's really a large chunk of rock, we should know ahead of time that it's coming. I guess we'd do that. In the meantime, you know, we have to actually prepare Mars so that at least there would be a space where human beings could survive. I'm much more concerned about the fact that almost all life on Earth was extinguished rather than whether we should ensure that our life form survives. I mean, I'm not so concerned about that because I don't think I'm going to be around. By the way, you don't know something that we don't know about a huge rock coming to Earth, do you? Well, it's sort of interesting. There was a there was a pretty good size. I can't remember what this thing weighed. I think it was a few tons asteroid from the asteroid belt that came within what twenty two thousand miles of Earth. Scary. This was recently. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. I mean, that that one's probably not big enough to extinguish all life. There are lots of chunks of rock up there. That one that came, it was not expected. People didn't know months ahead of time that it was going to come. Wow. Now you've just inspired me to go and do things that I've never done before. You see that? So, okay. <laughs> just, just make sure they're legal. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I have an important question to ask you, and I'm going to change directions here a little bit. Has the scar on your face healed? And I want to tell that story for the folks that are listening. When you were a kid and uh, you were in your basement, can you tell oh, us? Oh, didn't, it didn't leave a scar. It, Thank God. This was, this was uh, my father had to sew. I mean, it was glass that was stuck in the side of my face, but it was, yeah, so look, don't do what I did. I'm telling, talking to your audience now. I don't know if, if people know now that if you have calcium carbide used to be available in hardware stores. And if you drop a grain of calcium carbide into water, it generates acetylene gas. And so then if you kind of then force the acetylene out a glass tube, which has been drawn down to a very fine point, you can light that thing and you get this incredibly bright white flame. And that's more or less how miners' lamps work, lamps that miners use when they're going into coal mines and things like that. So I I thought I was going to make one of these things. The trouble is, the standard thing is to take a soda pop bottle. Now it's hard to find those bottles because they're all cans. And fill it mostly full of water and then drop a grain in and then put in a one-hole stopper with a glass tube that's drawn down and then light it and you get this bright flame. I'm laughing because but, but it only it only lasts for about you know you know a couple minutes and because then 
this little grain is consumed. And so I thought, well, okay, let's start with a beaker, 500 milliliter beaker, completely filled with calcium carbide grains. And then I would drop water in from a burette, one drop at a time. And so I thought this was going to work really well. But I didn't wait long enough to get all the oxygen out. So this thing exploded. And the largest piece of this 500 milliliter beaker was sticking in the side of my face. Oh, my God. And thank God your dad's a doctor and he yeah, was able so to sew you up. So my mother came to the top of the stairs. I was in the basement and I was coming up the stairs cupping my hands to catch the dripping blood. And she said, if you're kidding, I'll kill you. <laughs> and then she was in tears, I bet, right after, as soon as you took your hand Oh, no, away. no, no, no. She was, that was pretty par for my course, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm one of these guys that's lucky to have survived his childhood. I should tell you that I know two other Nobel laureates that have fingers missing from experiments gone awry. You see, and uh, maybe I'll cut that part out because I want to inspire students. <laughs> oh, man. So it is, uh, you know, full contact experimentation going on in universities, is it? Well, I, you can, the claim is you learn more from your mistakes than your successes. And that's a fact. We're going to have to start to wrap up, but I did want to tell folks that Douglas Asheroff, the son of Jewish immigrants who left Russia shortly after the turn of the century, his mom was the daughter of a Lutheran minister, interesting, whose parents were from what is now Slovakia. His dad, of course, is a doctor. Now, with such a history, the family history in medicine, what made you gravitate towards science? It's sort of interesting. I think my father treated all of his children differently. My older brother was very good at sports, and so, you know, my father would go to all of track meets and stuff like that. I, you know, I was the guy who would finish last. So I very quickly realized that that wasn't something that I enjoyed doing. But I think I was probably six years old when my father had me wind a coil of wire around a nail and then we attached the wire to a battery and suddenly the nail became a magnet. That's pretty heady stuff for a young kid. Absolutely. I think my father was the one that really fascinated me. And if, if you read books on Richard Feynman, you'll find out that his father actually played a similar role, except I think his father actually had him do mathematical things. I, my father, would just I was always playing around in, in the basement with experiments. Folks, our guest today is Nobel Prize in Physics Laureate 1996, Douglas Osheroff. Anybody studying physics right now, go to Stanford, get taught by the best, Douglas Osheroff. Douglas, we're going to have to start to wrap up now, but I'm going to ask you a question I virtually ask every guest who comes on the show. You're virtually speaking to every university student in Canada right now and international students as well, because the show is broadcast right across the internet as well. What would you say to them? Well, I tell you, I will give them the same advice I give my freshman advisees. I do with freshman advising at Stanford, by the way. And what I tell them is that the most important things they're going to learn at Stanford are not things they'll learn in any of their classes. They're things that they'll learn about themselves in response to the challenges and the stimulation of those classes. And those are the most important things that they can learn. I think that's perfect. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. My pleasure. All the very best to you. Thank you. To you. I sincerely want to thank Dr. Douglas Asheroff for coming on the show this afternoon and telling us his real life story and sharing with us what went on in the investigation of the Columbia accident. Very, very illuminating. Coming up next on Brent Holland, we are going to stay in this space realm, but we're going to look at it from the opposite end of the spectrum. By that I mean Roswell, 1947, folks. You've all heard the rumors, spacecraft crashed, did it, did it not. Next week, living history continues. 
the father of Roswell, Stanton Friedman. He was the first civilian to investigate the Roswell crash, and what he found out will change your reality, perhaps forever. He is going to bring all the details of the investigation right here next week. You can decide for yourself. Incidentally, Stanton Friedman holds dual citizenship. He is both an American and a Canadian. Stanton Friedman. In 1984, received a roll of film in the mail on which there were two sets of eight negatives each of a briefing for President-elect Eisenhower dated November 24th, 1952. And it says that in 1947, President Truman established this group called Operation Majestic 12 because of what happened at Roswell. He said a saucer crash bodies were recovered. It was advanced technology from somewhere else. They named the members of the team. Two Army, two Air Force, two Navy, five scientists, and the first Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal. www.brenthollandshow.com Do all your research online. Living history like Douglas Osheroff. Next week, we've got the father of Roswell. You can't get any more real than that. That's what this show is about. Bringing those stories to life by the people that went through them, inspiring and educating at the same time. Fascinating people in our world, folks. All too often they get glossed over, not on this show. Instead of a textbook, we bring you the real life stories as they saw it through their own eyes at the very time these tumultuous events were taking place. www.brenthollandshow.com. Incidentally, all the shows there are free for you to download. Stick them on your iPods, stick them on CDs. Get them out there. The information is what is important, not the messenger. Also, this show is available on a free syndication basis. If you would like to hear it on your station, just get them to contact us at www.brenthollandshow.com. No problem whatsoever. I'm Brent Holland. Thank you all for listening and keep the emails coming. See you later.